from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, with more kids nationwide coming into contact with each other in classrooms or learning pods, we look at the latest findings on the threat of the coronavirus to children and how easily they can spread it. The CDC reports most kids are asymptomatic or have only minor symptoms, but a small percentage can become severely ill. Black and Latinx children are also significantly more likely to be hospitalized if they contract the virus. We talk with a pediatric infectious disease specialist about how best to keep kids and those around them safe. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The American Academy of Pediatrics reports more than 97,000 Americans age 18 and younger tested positive for COVID-19 in the last two weeks of July. That marks a 40% jump in the number of cases among kids. We're still learning a lot about how dangerous the infection is to children and how quickly they can spread the coronavirus. And as some kids begin to interact more with each other than they have for months, we've invited Dr. Yvonne Maldonado to help make sense of some of the latest research. She's chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford Medicine. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Maldonado. And Dr. Maldonado, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Great. I can hear you. And that figure that I just mentioned, that 97,000 figure from the end of July, and according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, they also said yesterday that there's been a 90% increase in the number of COVID-19 cases among children in the U.S. over the last four weeks. I mean, those numbers, can you explain the jump? Is it just that we are testing more or is it a function of more kids getting infected? You know, it's really hard to know what the numbers mean uh, at this point because, frankly, um, surprisingly to me, uh, this is the first time we've actually had any uh, collated data on children uh, at a national level. And uh, so it's really hard to gauge what that means that, you know, uh, relative to um, what's happening to children in, in the real world out there. But I do think that a lot of it is related to um, increased availability of testing. And I think perhaps, and again, this is pure speculation, people are getting ready to go back to school and they're um, they're maybe they're uh, trying to see what what's, what their family status is like. Um, but we are also uh, in parallel seeing an increase in the number of children being hospitalized. Although it's not a dramatic increase, um, we are seeing uh, uh, the numbers uh, creep up a bit. Uh, they're still well under 10% of all the hospitalizations overall, and uh, and a very small percentage of children who get sick are actually being hospitalized or even have uh, uh, more than mild symptoms. So that slight so, uh, uptick yeah, in so the... I think, I think yeah. a lot of the issues are really have to do with um, the inability of any of this, uh, of us to have any nationally uh, um, uh, representative data. So this is at least a good first start. And we'll start to track trends as we get more data coming in. Even if this is... Uh, 
largely due to increased testing, though, as you say, there's that slight uptick in hospitalizations, which can be an even more clear indicator that there's a slightly higher number of kids getting sick. Do you think that this number is an undercount, just given the fact that kids are less likely to get tested generally? Oh, absolutely. I think um, it's it's always it's a it's it's generally understood in the public health arena that pretty much any disease um, uh, where you have to come in and have a test of some sort or have to be have a visit, uh, you're going to have undercounts. Um, and typically, undercounts can be quite dramatic. I mean, they can be on the order of anywhere from as low as 10% to even 90% underreporting. Um, depending on the disease. So I think there is a, a fair amount of underreporting going on with kids for the reasons you mentioned. Um, we don't even know, for example, really if children are not getting infected or if they're infected but have no symptoms. So there's really no great data around that either. Um, so, yeah, so it could be either of those or it could be true. Do you think parents should have their kids tested periodically or only if they're having symptoms? You know, I, um, I don't really think that a test is going to be that useful, though, given the structure of our testing capacity in the U.S. right now. And the reason I say that is, I mean, of course, if a child is sick, if they have symptoms or if there's somebody in the house who is uh, at risk for disease, for example, and they want to make sure the child isn't bringing something home from school or daycare, that could be a consideration, uh, but in general, it doesn't seem like that would be um, really helpful if a child is not sick and there um, aren't any other risks involved in the family members, for example. Um, and that's because, as we know, um, just because you have a negative test today doesn't mean you might not become infected and become positive later. Um, and so this it's really a one-time test. And what we're doing, for example, with returning to schools and universities, there's a number of publications out there, and, and I'm helping to work with the university here on their return to school policy. Testing is going to be critical, but we really need to rapidly find a very high throughput way to test people um, more often and at a very high volumes and very rapidly. That is, get results back as quick as we can. Right. Um, and that's just not available yet, really. We don't have the capacity that anywhere to do that. There are a number of promising ways to do it, but um, they're not really um, ready for prime time. So if you don't have that, what you've got really is testing that uh, may be tough to schedule. You get it in, and then the results may not come back for several days or even a week or more. So it's almost not really helpful uh, for you in real time if you need to know unless the child is ill or need to you know be uh, tested for clinical reasons. Which is, I think, part of the reason that you're hearing some parents just talking about how they're feeling left to really assess and determine the dangers on their own. Um, you mentioned that if a child is symptomatic, it's important to test them. What about very small kids? Are there any special considerations for testing them? Oh, no, you know, um, the testing for small children, for again, for a clinical diagnostics, we do that all the time in the hospital. So every single child that comes into our hospital and probably others as well, when they have the capacity, have to be tested just to make sure that for infection control purposes, we know if they're infected or not and can put them in appropriate isolation um, policy under, under 
appropriate isolation policies. And so in that scenario, we've been able to test even newborn babies. I mean, it's just, um, it, you just need to have a, a proper um, a, a medical, medically trained personnel to do the test, and they're very safe. The issue that I think we need to face in the coming weeks and months um, is really how to do uh, point-of-care-at-home testing that is really simple for everybody. And even there, um, there, there may be some difficulty with little kids because let's just say you do a saliva test. Those just logistically are hard even for adults. And so how kids are going to do that properly, they need to be trained and all of that. So we're still talking about uh, uh, the, the standard testing in the hospital or clinic setting which is actually pretty easy to do at any age. And in the future, how do we build better testing um, for um, mass screening, for example? And those definitely have to be age appropriate. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the death rate right now among children, because that was also a stat that's relatively new, that by the first week of August, 90 children in the U.S. had died of COVID-19. I know it represents less than 1% of all deaths, but how concerned should we be about that death rate? Well, I think we just need to be aware of the fact that children can even get infected. So I, you know, I started my career when uh, HIV was just starting to come onto the, uh, into the awareness of the U.S. in particular. And at that time, people were really not thinking about children or pregnant women as having HIV. And I we did a lot of work to build that awareness and prevention um, and treatments for children. And um, so I feel like we're doing the same here where obviously this isn't the same disease, but in terms of awareness, we're looking at sickest people and that's appropriate, but we have to remember that it, children do get sick. They can get infected and they can get sick. Now the rate, fortunately at this time, the rates look like they're very low and that's actually been pretty consistent. So across the world. So I think there's something different about kids. We don't understand that well, um, but, um, but, but it's not a zero risk. So everyone should be aware and careful uh, not to expose children needlessly. And the fact that you keep underlining that children do get sick and they do get infected with COVID-19, it feels like to some extent you are battling potential misinformation out there that the children you know, to quote the president, are virtually immune to this illness. And that's something that just really needs to be um, corrected. Yeah, well, you know, I think this disease has really under uncovered a lot of uh, a lot of basic um, human behaviors that are uh, really um, need to be either reinforced or um, uh, re reinformed. And I think the uh, issues around risk perception are critical with this disease. That's what's driving this epidemic right now, actually, is, is uh, risk perception. So either people think that they are not never going to come out of a bunker for the rest of their lives, or you have people on the other side who just say, I don't care, I don't really think I'm going to get sick, or it's not even a real virus. Um, but in the middle, you have a lot of people who say, yeah, I might get sick, but so what? That's hmm. harder to deal with, I think, in many ways, because they know there may be a virus out there. They, they probably know and, and probably are right that there's about a pretty, you know, better than a 70, 80 percent chance that they're not going to get very sick or sick at all. And so they don't really think it's a big deal. Unfortunately, if that's true and they keep practicing risky behaviors, 
then um, those other 20% of people who are going to be at higher risk for disease and even for death um, are never going to, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to be facing constant exposure. And so I think the same thing is true for children. Um, And especially because, you know, when you think about the children's risk for disease, I think that's critical. But from a societal perspective, um, they can also uh, transmit disease to others. And that's where we um, start to see population impacts. So I think for the child's benefit and for the population benefit, we just need to make people aware that they shouldn't be overly concerned, but they should be pre- take precautions and make sure they understand um, that children can get sick um, and they can get infected. Uh, and maybe they could be immune at some point. Maybe there are some ways that children are, have different immune responses. We know from work that we've done for many, many years um, that children's immune systems are very different from adults. They're rapidly evolving, so they don't respond the same way that adults do to disease. And um, it would be really helpful for us to know more about the uh, pediatric immune responses to this virus, because that could help us understand how this virus works in all age groups. We're talking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist, about the growing number of children testing positive for the coronavirus, especially in the last four weeks. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation with your questions or concerns about COVID-19 and children. Also curious how you're making decisions around trying to assess the dangers and what you're allowing children to do or people that they can see. The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Maldonado, you're talking about how important it is to understand how it presents in children in part to also protect others. And so one of the questions I had for you was whether or not we have any better understanding of to what extent kids are vectors of the illness. I mean, we had that one test, I mean, that one study out of Chicago that suggested children younger than five have a lot more of the virus, say, in their noses than older kids and adults. And then we had like a South Korea study that basically said kids over the age of 10 appear to transmit the virus just as much as adults. I mean, with this conflicting information, how can people, grandparents, teachers gauge um, being around kids? Well, I think um, we just have to re... First of all, I think we need to take into consideration uh, the health of the child. And I don't just mean the physical health. I think the mental health and the stress that children are also undergoing and make sure that when we deal with children, we explain to them um, what's going on here and, and as well as we can. Because remember, if we're talking about some basic behaviors such as distancing and masking... Um, the children are going to be confused at first. I'm sure they're going to wonder what's going on and why do I have to, why do I have to do this? Why do my parents have to do this? Um, and so that needs to be the, the, the basic um, starting point, making sure that the children are included in the conversation at their developmental level, because they pick up a lot more than we give them credit for, especially the little ones. Um, and then after that, it's really the same that thing that we do for everybody else. You just need to tailor it to your own, you know, your own home or um, uh, social situation. So it's still the same principles of masking children over two. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has really um, stood by the 
CDC guidance, which is that children over two can really um, tolerate masks uh, in a social situation and uh, really distancing six feet. Um, and if, uh, if that's not possible in school settings, for example, three feet with masking and then the hygiene. So all of those areas are the same message. It's just how do you tailor those in the real world? Um, so people having backyard barbecues and parties, it's, I think it's great to think about still getting families together, but in small numbers and with distancing and masking. And that's the piece that people aren't doing that, um, that will result in transmissions. And we're seeing it happen um, in the population that I take care of because I'm not only a pediatrician, but I'm running clinical trials uh, for antiviral therapies. And we're seeing uh, people coming in who have been exposed at family gatherings and um, the kids get infected too. And the children are more likely, at least in our experience and in most of the literature so far, uh, suggests that kids are actually getting infected um, within their households rather than being the primary source of infection. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let me go to Carol in Mill Valley, who I think has a related question. Hi, Carol. Join us. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I actually have just a couple of questions. If the physician could um, address the um, issue of having children go back to school and what the uh, parameters should be to determine that based on the locale, the infection rate in that area and how a school can handle that and the impacts of not going back to school. And then another question I have, if the physician could talk about hydrochloroquine and the early studies that came out that were completely based on patients that were already uh, near death's door on respirators compared to the data that's coming out using hydrochloroquine with Zithromax and zinc early on in the uh, illness and how that um, approach to looking at this has been um, censored by um, the medical community and big pharma. And um, just the questions that people have about the finances that will be benefiting some people to have to do vaccines and also to have to do very high-priced antivirals. Carol, thanks. Uh, Dr. Maldonado, she laid out a few things there if you want to sort of take them one at a time. A day to go over all of those questions, but I will just give it a high-level try. So uh, the first question around schools, the American Academy of Pediatrics, has set out very, uh, very uh, gra- uh, nice guidance. Um, it, you can go to aap.org, and there are there's guidance there uh, for pediatricians and other providers, as well as for families, and that is through the healthychildrens.org uh, website link on the AAP website. And there are a lot of guidances that are posted there for parents. There's many, many questions and uh, answered there, or at least um, uh, suggestions. Um, but I think the issue of school opening is, um, uh, it's not clear. If it were clear, I think we ever would be very, you know, binary guidance. But I think the caller brought up some very good points around what to be considered. And you can't really get into the weeds on all of those points because it's so regional or local. But we need to take into account local transmission going on in communities, mm-hmm. um, as well as what resources the schools might have to go back to school. Um, that is, can they distance the kids? Can they provide masks for the teachers? Can they do deep cleaning once a day, at least yeah, at least once a day, and as well as interval regular cleaning of desks and playgrounds and 
all of the things that it takes to run a school based on all of the infection control practices that are recommended. So some districts have the capacity and others don't. Um, we know that in the northeast of the U.S., the rates of infection are dropping off pretty significantly, and it's thought that that would be a good place to start with kids going back to school on a regular basis. But um, even there, um, the um, uh, local school districts are doing that on an individual basis, depending on what their capacity is. And what we, and the reason I bring it up that way is because we, we see that even if you have eliminated disease altogether, it's, we do not have herd immunity. So an infection coming into a, a system, even one school, if not handled properly, can lead to um, another outbreak setting. So um, it, we should not feel that, well, there's no infections going on now, so we can just go back to normal. The, the best example I can point to that is uh, New Zealand, which had what, gone 102 days without any cases. And actually, one of my former PhD students was one of the people who helped uh, lead that effort. And um, it worked very well for a number of reasons, which we don't have to go into here. But they did have uh, a few cases just pop up just earlier this week. So we know that, um, and they're going to handle them well, I believe. But the point is, you can't be satisfied that, oh, there's no cases now, so we don't have to do anything. So we need to really focus on what's going on locally. And the best advice I have for an individual is to make sure that they know what their school district is messaging, making sure that they're informed about what the school is requiring and what their capacity is. Hmm. So that's that question. Just really quickly. Uh, so it sounds like you're saying, for example, the Surgeon General says that if we see a positivity rate in our area less than 10%, that that's pretty good. But you're actually saying even if it's zero, things can happen and you should really look at the specific practices of your district. Yeah, and no, I'm not saying they shouldn't open. I'm just saying that they right. should. Um, they should just. They, you can't just open and you know go back to the um, you know uh, put, dial the clock back a year. You're going to have to do all of these things, even if there's no infections. And I think um, this is a really important public health point. People forget what happened before, and they tend to repeat their mistakes because they assume that everything is you know that the you know we've solved the problem. Um, for example, with vaccines, people think, well, we don't have diseases anymore. Why do we need vaccines? And in fact, we don't have diseases in many cases because of vaccines working. So um, the same idea here that, well, the virus in some areas looks like it. We don't I haven't seen a case. So why? And the reason is somebody the virus is as long as it's anywhere in the world, it can come into your environment and cause disease. And so we just need to be aware of that. So local resources need to be available. And we'll try to get to the second part of Carol's question after the break. We're talking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford Medicine. And we'll also get to a lot more questions and calls. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Stay with us.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're discussing what the latest science tells us about how COVID affects children and how to keep them and those around them safe from infection. We're with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford Medicine. And we're with you, our listeners. Call us with your questions or comments at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. 6786. You can also email us at forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Tell us your concerns about your child contracting or transmitting COVID. Do your kids talk about it? Are they worried about getting sick? What have you done to try and comfort them? Has your child tested positive? If so, what was your experience? And um, just before the break, Dr. Maldonado, Carol had a question about hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, um, there, uh, I, that was a loaded question, but um, uh, the data were pretty transparent. I think most of us had a chance to see the data. I don't think there was any censorship involved, and uh, the data were pretty clear. It didn't work. Um, there are some places that are still using it, and that's you know good for them. I mean, I don't see a issue with people using it, but and there are still some trials. Uh, most of them not in the U.S. anymore, but looking at that drug in combination with other um, uh, products. Um, and that's, you know, an ongoing process. We are, you know, conducting uh, the best quality re- research we can in as transparent a fashion as possible. I mean, data are available. In fact, in some cases, data are available sooner than uh, than peer review data are available. So people are seeing uh, it in real time. And um, I think this just reflects uh, anxiety, you know, a well, well-founded anxiety around the, the wish for a rapid treatment and cure. Um, and I think people are working as hard as they can and being, and I have to say the, the degree of collaboration um, and sharing and uh, intellectual discussion and practical discussion has been um, uh, the most robust I've ever seen in my career. Well, thanks for getting that on the record. And and Wendy writes, my friend just took a cross-country flight and has scheduled tests for herself and her husband, but cannot find a place that will test her children. Why shouldn't they be tested mm. after a long flight? That's interesting. I, you know, I, I really can't answer that, that. I mean, I can't tell you specifically. There are no uh, guidance guidelines that I know of that say sh- children shouldn't be tested. I don't think, uh, I think after travel, it would be helpful to know if your child is um infected or not. Um, most clinics that I know of, and certainly, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not advertising here, but I know that a lot of the clinics that I work with or that our, my colleagues are engaged with, all of them allow testing of children. The American Academy of Pediatrics has testing guidelines for, children, for practitioners. So we know that pediatricians and other providers are testing. So perhaps um, I guess I would recommend that the person look for another venue for testing Yes. Um, and my understanding is that ins- the CARES Act has provided for uh, insurance coverage uh, reimbursement for testing. So in many cases, it shouldn't really even involve out-of-pocket costs, if you're, depending on what your insurance plan is. I want to take a moment to ask you about multisystem inflammatory syndrome. A small number of kids get it. I believe right now the number of kids in California is is like 36 statewide. But still, it's something that's very concerning to doctors because it can lead to heart failure. It can even lead to death. Can you talk about how concerned we should be about MIS-C or multisystem inflammatory syndrome? 
Well, I do think it's, again, it's, uh, you know, similar to what I mentioned earlier. We do have to be concerned about the fact that uh, children can get infected and they can have severe disease. Now, MISC um, is, a, is a syndrome that seems to be unique to children um, and maybe even a variant of what we're seeing in adults, but it's really, uh, it seems at least at this point to be quite distinct. Um, and the children can actually get quite ill. They can be hospitalized. They can actually be in the intensive care unit and because of the severity of their symptoms. But what has happened by and large is that the vast majority of the children, um, and there's probably less than, I think, 600 cases reported as of last week, earlier this last week um, to, to, to the CDC in the U.S., the vast majority of the children actually do recover and um, uh, the, the mortality rate is quite low, but it's still a concerning uh, syndrome because it's of its severity. And also because in general, uh, for anything around COVID and specifically for MISC, we don't really understand yet any of the long-term impacts because we haven't had the virus around long enough to know. But there do seem to be issues around uh, cardiac um, function and perhaps neurologic function in a small subset of people. Mm-hmm. So I think um, there are registries. Um, and fortunately, here in California, uh, we do have uh, in Southern California an, uh, an expert in a disease that is similar, a syndrome that is similar called Kawasaki syndrome or Kawasaki disease. And um, it's not the same, but it's similar enough that, that uh, those investigators and others have really been trying to understand more about what is going on with the children's immune responses? Is this um, re- related to the virus triggering some unusual response? And if so, what would that be? Um, and also trying to follow these kids over time. So um, anybody who has a child who's had MISC knows that it, it is frightening and children can get quite ill. Um, and uh, we encourage people to um, to find out from their providers how to enter their children into a registry so that they can be followed over the long term. Ah, and in terms of symptoms to be on the lookout for? Well, um, it's, you know, most of the time what's unique about MISC, at least so far, is that the children don't seem to, first of all, it's younger children, but but, but I would say in, you know, preteens more, more than anything. Um, but, uh, but not yeah, very young, not t- infants and toddlers so much. But um, it, the uh, hallmark, for some reason, seems to be lack of uh, acute infection. So that is if the family members all get sick with acute disease, with fever, cough, shortness of breath, for example, the children don't tend to have those symptoms. They actually start getting this disease um, about two weeks or so into the course of everybody else's illness at home. So it appears more of an immune-type uh, triggered response to re- resolving the infection or, of, um, or, yeah, the infection. And so the children will present, uh, they will have fever and they can have a rash um, or, uh, or other, um, uh, other uh, general complaints, tiredness. Um, uh, and so those are the major findings, which again are concerning not only because of the severity of the disease, but the fact that so many illnesses in young kids can start with a fever and a rash. So um, I think a good provider will know how to distinguish a sick, a really sick child with a fever and a rash from somebody who's experiencing, say, a summer virus of some sort. What's also so alarming is the fact that Latinx and and Black kids account for the largest proportion of kids with MISC and that that CDC report that came out said essentially that 
Latino children are approximately eight times more likely uh, to be hospitalized if they get COVID-19 and, and black children five times more likely than their white counterparts. I mean, why is that? Do we have any understanding? Yeah, so I think uh, people are concerned about that in adults as well. And certainly the question is, is there a genetic difference in the response to the virus or does this reflect social and economic determinants or, or is it all of the above? We just don't know the answer to that. But if you look at the social and economic determinants, those actually are big drivers of the disparities of infection of racial and ethnic minorities in general and potentially in children as well. And the reason I say that is even in the UK, where the first studies reports of MISC and the studies of MISC were uh, were um, were, were uh, presented, um, they also demonstrated that um, in their communities of color that, that there were more of a propensity of this disease in children. But it also may reflect the fact that children in those populations are just more likely to be exposed to the virus yeah. um, in their households. So it's hard to know. Um, but both uh, both immune mechanisms uh, and um, health and socioeconomic disparities may be at play here. Well, this listener asks, could your guest describe the COVID toes phenomenon in kids? Is this something we parents should be looking out for? Can you describe what COVID toes is? And, and uh... Yeah, so there's an old term for them uh, called chillblains, and uh, they basically are uh, little purple raised spots uh, that can appear on toes and sometimes fingers, but also other parts of the body just tend to be and the tips of toes and fingers. And um, it doesn't just happen in children. It happened. It was first reported in adults because I guess there was more disease in adults overall. And now that's we're starting to see them in children as well. Um, and it's likely a result of um, of uh, blood clotting in the small vessels um, that um, that are uh, found at the ends of the fingers and toes. And it, it does reflect this immune response that we see in general um, in some people and, and maybe even more people than we recognize, but at least in studies that have been done of very ill people, we know that blood clotting, um, a propensity for blood clotting uh, due to some trigger from this virus has been seen in all age groups. And so this is one end of that spectrum where you just get some of these small blood clots and then they, um, they get these little um, purple areas um, that represent little small hemorrhages. Uh, they tend not to be um, uh, medically as concerning as they look. They look kind of scary, uh, but they tend to resolve on their own over time. But they can be a, a, an indicator that maybe the child has a COVID and a, an adult as well can have these. We're talking with pediatrician and infectious disease specialist Yvonne Maldonado about how children are testing positive at much higher rates for the coronavirus. More than 97,000 tested positive in the last two weeks of July here in the U.S., representing a 40 percent increase in the number of pediatric COVID cases. We're looking at the latest research, what it tells us about how COVID affects children and how to keep them and you safe. The number again, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786 for your questions and comments on the coronavirus and children. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Phyllis in Menlo Park, join us. Hi, Phyllis. Hi, yes. Um, 
Uh, thanks for the informative uh, program. I'm wondering what happens to the immune system. Um, you said the children's immune system is different. It's developing. Is that more blood, more white cells? Uh, what do you mean by that? And also, does ibuprofen have an effect on um, on the immune system? I, I'd heard that it does. Phyllis, thanks. Yeah, those are great questions. So, um, as you can imagine, uh, immunity is, uh, we're learning uh, over, over time that it's actually much more complex as we delve deeper into understanding the different pathways that the immune system can take. And it's quite an, an, a unique and exciting, uh, if you would call it, organ system. So the immune system itself as a system is, is just uh, very fascinating and uh, a really amazing defense against uh, the world around us, essentially. But, but you need to start developing that at some point. So we know that fetal development of the immune system begins uh, quite early. Um, we don't know enough about fetal immune uh, development, but what we do know is when children are born, their immune systems are not uh, really as um, nimble uh, in response to bacteria and viruses and other organisms as an adult's immune system. And uh, it does take at least six, nine, 12 months uh, before you start to see some typical uh, immune immunologic assays that we use to measure uh, immunity, uh, immune responses for, for those in children to really ramp up to levels that can be close to uh, older children responses and adult responses. And so those are the kinds of things that we look at. And we know that there are definitely blind spots that the immune system of a newborn uh, faces, um, and there, it really seems to be um, an ev- evolutionary process in the infant immune response, um, it, and um, and it, it it fixes itself over time. I mean, it just basically matures over time, and of course, then what we see is as people get older, we see uh, what we call immune senescence or the aging of the immune system, and by the time people are over sixty or so, um, and, and it starts earlier than that, but really you start to see some higher risk of uh, losing that nimble response that we see in the peak of uh, early adulthood. Um, And so that's where, uh, you know, most providers and um, public health officials really try to get involved with understanding what diseases children, young children might be susceptible to in those early months when their immune responses are evolving. And so vaccines and um, other infection control policies are really helpful. I think vaccination in particular around the world has made a big difference in young children in helping to boost responses. Um, so we're hoping that that may be true for this virus as well as we learn more about the immune response. And that's actually the biggest bottleneck here is trying to really understand not just in children, but overall, what is going on with the immune system um, in COVID and what is going on, not just with the sickest people, but what's going on with healthy people who might have uh either no symptoms or mild symptoms. As that is, is there a difference in the trigger? Yes. Um, and speaking of triggers, um, uh, there was some concern that uh, because of the mechanism of, of the way this virus is thought to work in triggering blood clots and um, other inflammatory responses, the thought was that perhaps non-steroidal anti-inflammatories might have either a negative or a positive effect on the virus. And I mean, there's a lot, it's complicated, but there's pathways that could that are uh, thought to either work either for or against uh, viral um, 
viral complications. You mean and like so, ibuprofen? Uh, yes. Right, ibuprofen. Um, uh, you know, even things like acetaminophen, for example. But but uh, there have been a number of studies now looking at the uh, effect of those drugs in severity of disease. And so far, nobody has shown that they do impact severity one way or the other. So that's actually good news at this point. But again, people are still trying to understand what role those anti-inflammatories might have. Well, this listener, Ira, wants to know, with the flu season approaching, do we know what complications might arise when it collides with COVID? Also, Ira is wondering if we have any information on the differences and how it impacts different age groups. But yeah, flu is definitely on people's minds. Oh, yeah. So we've been thinking about that for a while because, remember, the pandemic started at the tail end of uh, of our of a flu season in China and, and here in the U.S. So we did get a few clues, um, and there were actually a few publications looking at uh, viral co-infection. But remember, that was in March, February, March, April. We didn't really have a lot of data uh, or a lot of people to, to really report on here in the U.S., um, and, and, and there are data from China, but they were also looking at a pandemic that was really out of control at the beginning and um, maybe didn't have uh, the capacity to really drill down to the, the res- other respiratory viral complications. What we do know is that uh, it's, it is possible to get co-infections. So there's no reason why you can't have COVID disease and flu at the same time or any other virus for that matter. An early publication demonstrated about 20% of people that came in in March and April actually did have co-infections. They didn't seem to be sicker um, than people who had one infection or, or both or, or more. And, uh, but the numbers were small. And, of course, this was mostly an outpatient study. And other people have confirmed those findings. So um, we don't really know in the height of a major say, flu pandemic and COVID pandemic, what might happen there. But the minimum we would expect is that you could have just two pandemics on top of each other with equal severity to what they had done before, just meaning um, uh, really impacting the capacity of our hospitals and providers. Because we know every, every winter our capacity to take care of the flu and flu patients is actually uh, stretching our resources uh, a bit already. So the, even at a very basic uh, level, the concern for just capacity of taking care of both pandemics at the same time may be uh, is something that we always have been preparing for. So that's one issue. The other is we don't really know um, that the combined diseases, if they would occur in the same person, uh, would cause more serious illness or not. But we do think that they, it can't help you to have two viral infections at the same time. Uh, especially both of them targeting uh, one main organ, which is the lungs and potentially the heart as well. So you don't want that to happen. And we're uh, actually recommending uh, that people really strongly consider getting their flu vaccine this year um, because of this concern. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the University of California has already mentioned that they're mandating that all of their um, staff and uh, employees and students get vaccinated for the coming season because of this major concern. So the, um, the other issue, though, is the good news, I guess, if there is any here, um, and it's not great, but it's better than nothing, is uh, that <laughs> when, we look at the, when we look at the Southern Hemisphere, where there's flu, their winter or flu season generally precedes ours by about six months or so, because you know, just their seasons are different. 
Um, we are not seeing a lot of flu in the Southern Hemisphere this year. In fact, in some countries, they've seen a 90% reduction in flu, um, potentially because either social distancing or perhaps, you know, the virus is just, you know, we don't really know why, but maybe the virus is just not prominent this year. But, um, but that may be helpful in seeing what might be coming for us in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, I wouldn't depend on that and say, well, I'm not going to go get my flu shot this year or I'm not going to be, you know, careful about flu precautions. But the flu precautions would be actually quite similar to what we're recommending for COVID anyway. Well, uh, let me go to caller Cheryl in Oakland. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, I was wondering when, when you were talking about disparities across um, you know, racial and ethnic populations um, that, you know, in the U.S. Um, and you also mentioned in um, the U.K. that uh, black and uh, Latino children seem to be getting it more. I was just wondering if there have been studies of um, uh, countries that are predominantly of those um, racial or ethnic groups. And if we are in general seeing that they have significantly higher levels of COVID. Thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, it's hard to compare uh, countries in the Western world, for example, that have highly resourced capacity to do testing and screening and reporting with some of these other, other areas of the world. Um, I, I worked, for example, before this, I worked quite a bit in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. We know that Latin America is getting hit pretty hard right now, and um, we don't know uh, why that might be. Is it uh, racially, ethnic, genetically related? Are there? It's, it seems to be that even within some of those countries that the uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged are being hit at a higher uh, rate, and that would make sense from what we know about the way the virus is spread. Um, but the, how to compare those populations, for example, population uh, by socioeconomic status would be interesting to do. But right now, nobody's, I don't, as far as I understand, nobody's really been able to do that work. And when we look at, um, for example, a highly populated country like India, um, they are also seeing huge numbers of cases. Um, um, and again, the highest rates seem to be in those that are not really able to distance, or, you know, the the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, so we do know that the um, social conditions uh, are really pushing this epidemic very hard. But to what extent their um, um, factors, uh, biological factors, play a role is not clear at this time. It's a well, good question, though. This listener tweets, I'm grateful that my kids are all teens and remote learning works fine. The reports of long-term health issues are all very alarming, and my top priority is avoiding exposure. Andrea writes, does Dr. Maldonado have any thoughts on parents making the difficult choice to put infants in daycare versus keeping them at home? Navigating that, Dr. Maldonado? Yeah, you know, again, I um, uh, go to the aap.org website and the healthychildrens.org link there, or you can try the healthychildrens.org link separately. There's a whole um, little uh, FAQ section on what to consider around daycare um, and other factors around social uh, pods and okay. things like that. Um, but I think in general, it really um, that comes back to what I said about schools, which is you need to be an informed parent. And I recognize how difficult it is. You know, I have three children, but they're all adults now. And there's 
I just don't can't imagine how uh, much uh, the young people are uh, with children are um, trying to juggle uh, economics and uh, workplace issues and um, trying to be good parents. It's got to be really tough. And a so, lack of data. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so we, t- we, I think, first of all, I want to make sure that parents and children get their mental health needs taken care of. It does help to talk to somebody. Uh, if you can even have a Zoom uh, group to talk to, I think um, that people just are very resilient um, when they have each other. And uh, that's, I think, highest on the list right now, because that's the big impact for the average family right now, and especially one with small children. Um, well, but I do think that the daycare issue should be dealt with around uh, just being understanding what the daycare looks like, you know, making sure that you know that they're uh, taking care at a distance and deep cleaning is important, you know, keeping the kids apart as much as possible, but giving them some social interaction, um, appropriate social interaction. I know those, those are lots of things, but I think uh, that's the best way to um, to deal with the daycare issue. But I do think pe- people are here at the hospital, you know, we are working all the time. So we were taking a walk the other night and um, the parking lot was full. And uh, my husband asked me, why is the parking lot full? I said, well, we, we still have to go to work. And uh, it was, you know, so the people are bringing their kids to daycare, but we are very careful. We have not seen any transmissions in our daycare centers, but, you know, there are other, there are, you know, you have to monitor that. Yes. Well, thank you for saying that. I do think that part of it is so important to to remember to monitor, engage your own mental health through all of this and your child's. This listener writes, should children's height determine whether they wear masks? If they're over four feet tall, can they spread the virus to adults? It's an interesting question. We've had a lot of inquiries around masks generally. And I mean, I don't know if if height is a factor, uh, but would also just love to get your advice on how to get kids to adjust to masks, especially the very young, since they are recommending the kids to and older wear them? Yeah, um, I think it really is all about messaging. There's a lot of little FAQs out there. Again, the ones I mentioned before, talk about little tips. You know, children will pattern after their, the, the adults they see around them. And they, they don't do what you say, they do what you do. Um, and, uh, and that's probably a good thing for us as adults to remember, but just reassuring them and explaining to them what's going on. Um, kids can, can do a lot and they can, they can, uh, you know, you can make it into a, an exercise, a fun exercise. You got to practice it. You can practice in the mirror, et cetera. So there are lots of little tips around how to do that. And it won't work 100% of the time, you know, but it doesn't work for adults 100% of the time either. I think it just needs to be, this is one way uh, where families can make this a a family um, Hmm. uh, activity. And it's really age, Um, not height, that's a factor, just to address this. Well, the height issue is interesting. We kind of, I mean, people were joking about, well, yeah, they're going to transmit virus to somebody's knees. But, you know, the reality and all of us who work in the hospital with kids all the time, know that children can get um, secretions on anything. So you have to be, just because they're shorter doesn't mean it's not going to reach your face. Eventually it could reach your face. Um, And uh, we always take extra precautions even before COVID because we know that if they're, if they have a runny nose, it's going to, that can wind up on your face at some point. So 
Well, thanks for... uh, We do have lower infection rates in our hospital staff because of that. Yeah, well, thanks for clarifying that and also clarifying as much as you can to the extent that the research allows that's out there and your own experience. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado of Stanford, infectious disease expert and head of the Department of Pediatrics. Really appreciate having you on. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.